Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Growing up, maybe as a middle school student, I became obsessed with a book by James Brussel, a psychologist who helped catch the Mad Bomber and maybe the Boston Strangler as well. It was about profiling. It was about taking what you do know about a criminal and figuring out what you don't know about a criminal so you can catch him. And that, of course, has become kind of a cottage industry now. And we see lots of things on television about it, including James Fitzgerald, the guy who helped catch the Unabomber. This is a show about all that. And you actually will hear from James Fitzgerald and you'll hear from Bill James, the father of a special kind of baseball statistical analysis. But he also used the same strategies to figure out a century-old mystery involving a serial killer. Sixteen-year hunt for New York's Mad Bomber ends with the arrest and confession of George Metesky, a toolmaker who admitted hiding 31 homemade pipe bombs in public places since 1940. Twenty-one of them exploded, injuring 15 persons in all. His motive was revenge against the Consolidated Edison Company for a 1931 plant accident he believed gave him tuberculosis. At his Waterbury home where he lived with two maiden sisters, police found a garage workbench and parts for the explosive handiwork that had become infuriatingly familiar to them. The clues that led to Metesky's identification from old claim files were in his frequent letters to the press and unusual handwriting and references to his grievance. Now he faces sanity tests and trial. His campaign ended. All right. 16 years, by the way, uh, turns out to be a very important number in the life of George Metesky. That's about, about how long he was active as the Mad Bomber. Also, also, I think about how long he spent in, in uh, an institute for the criminally insane after he was apprehended. Okay, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about one of the means by which he was apprehended or one of the contributors to the apprehension of George Metesky. It's possible to debate how big a contribution this was. But I, first of all, I have to put my cards on the table. At the age of 14, I became, I would say, the world's biggest 14-year-old James Brussel fan. Now, you don't know that name. Uh, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry, which is weird. But so James Brussel was this guy, we're going to talk about him right now, who had written a book called Casebook of a Crime Psychiatrist, which I got my hands on, I think, because my parents loved stuff like this. They just had it around the house a lot. And so I read Casebook of, of a Crime Psychiatrist once, and then I just read read it from the beginning all over again. I probably read it four times. And then I sort of, you know, I kind of kept up as much as I could. He didn't actually have that much longer a life, as I recall. But anyway, it was a fascinating story. And it was something that I had never heard of before, this kind of notion that a psychiatrist, not a detective, a psychiatrist could maybe figure out who a criminal was without ever having met that criminal. Now, this is a pretty pedestrian notion these days. There are like eight primetime series on at any given moment that are predicated on that idea. But it was pretty radical. You know, it was very Sherlock Holmesy, and Brussel himself had kind of a theatrical streak to him. So he seemed to me like Sherlock Holmes. We're going to talk about that theatrical streak here. Anyway, I've always been fascinated 
since then by profilers, which, by the way, is not something that Russell was called at the time. And they didn't have that term. But we're going to talk about profilers today. We are also going to talk a little bit later. We're going to talk to an actual real and rather acclaimed FBI profiler, James Fitzgerald. And then towards the end of the show, and this is an oddity about which I knew nothing. So Bill James is really famous for his statistical analysis of baseball and his ability to mine statistical details out of baseball that are very significant and telling. We're going to talk to him and his co-author about a completely different project where they essentially applied a lot of those techniques to a crime. Um, and they, in fact, found or may have found a serial killer where nobody knew that the serial killer existed. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. But right now, I'm going to talk to Michael Cannell. Michael Cannell uh, shares my fascination uh, with James Russell, Dr. James Russell. Uh, he is the author of Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, The Mad Bomber, and The Invention of Criminal Profiling. I also want to say, this is a profoundly Connecticut story. Uh, an awful lot of this, the bombs didn't go off in Connecticut, but the Everything else went off in Connecticut, you could say. Uh, so you will um, probably hear about some locales that are familiar to you if you're listening in Connecticut right now. Um, Michael Cannell, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm completely amazed by the story of you reading uh, Dr. Brussel's book when you were 14 years old. I didn't think anybody had heard of him. Um, no, I, I know all about him, and I, I really did read that book about four times. And so um, I don't know all about him. I mean, you know, you know much more about him. But um, I, I knew a lot about him at a very young age. So um, and, and so let's talk about this guy. First of all, give people just a quick thumbnail. I mean, who, who was he before he became this acclaimed crime psychiatrist? Well, if you think about New York in the, in the 1950s, it was a time when psychoanalysis and psychiatry was very glamorous. These famous psychiatrists were, had come over from, from Europe about 10 years or 15 years earlier as refugees from Nazi Germany, and they kind of took uh, New York's intellectual circles by storm. It was very fashionable to lie down on the psychiatric couch and be analyzed by one of these, uh, one of these famous psychiatrists. Dr. Brussel was not part of that world. He was not a prestigious psychiatrist. He was really a bureaucrat. His, he was the assistant commissioner of the Department of Mental Hygiene in the state of New York. His job really was to run the psychiatric hospitals around New York City. And um, so he, he didn't have, he had a little psychiatric uh, psycho, psychoanalysis practice on the side. But really his job was to minister to these um, violent and deranged people who are confined to state-run hospitals. And, and the reason, part of the reason that's significant is that he saw human life in its most violent and, and grim and, and gruesome. And so I, I think he did have an insight into violent behavior that his um, more glamorous or prestigious colleagues did not have. Um, he, he would not really have uh, been any the person that anybody would have gone to um, for this kind of advice, except that because he worked for the state, some policemen um, knew him, and um, they had they had appeared together um, in panel discussions, and also Dr. Brussel appeared in trials. He was a um, you know, an expert witness in trials. And so the police tended to know him. So they, the police came to him. I mean, it's almost impossible to describe. 
uh, the level of concern excited by the Mad Bomber, who was, you know, active for many, many years uh, and and planted many, many bombs. Uh, and the, and he planted them in New York City, where when it's amazing that he didn't kill people, right? I mean, these bombs would go off in movie theaters, they'd go off in phone booths, all kinds of places like that. Um, and so there's a, quite a bit of pressure on the police to solve this case. They, for years, had no leads. And so at some point, they decided to do something which, I mean, is it fair to say basically nobody had done this kind of thing before? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, as you've said, it's hard to believe that they hadn't, this hadn't, you know, occurred to the police before. But in the 1950s, the police, you know, they hated the idea of going outside their own ranks for help. You know, they hated the idea, you know, their, their attitude was, why do we, you know, why, why is it that somebody with a college education can help us? Police work, detective work, meant roughing up suspects and leaning on informants. They didn't really believe in any of this kind of, you know, hocus-pocus about psychiatry. And so when the head of the crime, uh, the bomb squad, went to Dr. Brussel's office, he was accompanied by a couple of bomb squad detectives, and they just sat there like kids who had been pulled into the principal's office. You know, they couldn't wait to get out of there. They just considered it um, to be a waste of time. And this was really, the police were so desperate to catch the serial bomber because he hadn't killed yet, but it was, it was clear that he was going to kill and maybe kill a lot of people. And they, were, they, they had no leads. They were desperate to catch him. So going to see Dr. Uh, Russell was really kind of like a hail, it was like a hail Mary pass. It was an act of desperation. Now, what Brussel does, and I don't want to steal the thunder from your book because this is a really interesting and detailed story, and people should consider, if they like this kind of thing anyway, uh, reading Incendiary by my guest, Michael Cannell, uh, the story of the psychiatrist, the mad bomber, and the invention of criminal profiling. But what Brussel does essentially is provide a series of educated guesses. I mean, you know, I mean, as magical as they can make it look on primetime TV, what Brussel's really doing is playing the odds. He's saying, for example, that. Eastern Europeans tend to use bombs uh, to, when they want to kill people. So maybe this guy's Eastern European. You know, it, it's stuff like that. The, he, because he has arrived at a diagnosis of this guy, he's got a body type that statistically matches, maps onto this diagnosis more than, uh, than other body types, a kind of symmetrical athletic uh, body type. Stuff like that. Stuff that you can't really take to the bank. Um, and, and stuff that really is a matter of playing the odds, Michael. Um, on the other hand, because Brussel has a, a slightly theatrical streak, he, he really provides, you know, some details that are even beyond that, right? They have to fall into the area of just hunches. Yeah, and, and Dr. Brussel was very open about that. I mean, part of what I thought was just so interesting about this story is that, is that um, we tend to think today, we tend to think of profiling as a, as a kind of science. Um, to Dr. Brussel, it was a science insofar as it was based on Freudian theory, but he really believed in intuition. He believed in the power of the hunch. And so when the, um, when the police came to his office and showed him all the evidence, he spent about two hours looking at the evidence, and then he just he went over to the window in his office, which overlooked City Hall Park, and he just conjured this image of the bomber in his mind. I mean, it's almost kind of a, a mystical process. And, and, and so, yes, it was based on data. Yes, it was based on, um, on probability, as you say. But it was also just, you know, he allowed himself to have a kind of intuition about who the bomber was. 
And so I, uh, I don't want to give away too much because this stuff is pretty amazing. But I, it's, it's, if people know who Brussel is at all, they, they might know. First of all, he pretty well nailed the person that George Benteski turned out to be. And then he did this completely uncanny thing, which is he described how George Benteski would be dressed when they apprehended him. And he didn't quite get it right because it just turned out Benteski came to the door in his pajamas and bathrobe. But I'll let you tell the rest of the story. Right. So, Doc, so the, the, the police were in, uh, the detectives were in Dr. Brussel's office, as I mentioned, and he just allowed his own subconscious to sort of sift through all of this information. And as I said, he conjured the bomber, and he turned to the detectives, and he said, the man that you're looking for um, has never had a girlfriend. He lives with an older female relative. He lives in a northern suburb of the city. He's from a Slavic background. He has a history of workplace disputes. And then the coup de, coup de grace, he said, when you catch him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted jacket, and it will definitely be buttoned. And about a month later, uh, the police went to a bedraggled house in Waterbury, Connecticut, and rang the doorbell at midnight. And a man came to the door, uh, answered the door, who was, in fact, the bomber, and he fit that description pretty much exactly. Right. And he did go get dressed, and when he came back out, he had the double-breasted suit. Exactly, yeah. So so here's the question. Okay, so my image of Dr. Brussel is one of a blazing incendiary, to use your word, genius. Uh, But most of my, or maybe even almost all of my impression of Dr. Brussel was based on Dr. Brussel's descriptions of his own activities in some of these high-profile cases, which extend beyond the Mad Bomber to things like the Boston Straggler and stuff like that, too. Um, So backing off from that a little bit, uh, my sense also is Dr. Brussel didn't break this case. The cops broke this case. Uh, When they broke the case, it was amazing how closely the bomber resembled uh, everything that Brussel said he would be. But how much did Brussel actually really materially help the police? Well, my understanding from talking to profilers today is that um – uh, to, uh, is that really profiles don't break cases. As you say, detectives break cases, but the profiles can play a very, very important role because they can affirm what the police may may suspect. Um, they provide a kind of, you know, a kind of intelligent guesswork that underpins the, the more conventional um, detective work. Now, in the case of the Mad Bomber, the police had reason to believe that they had found Metesky. And, and that reason came out of the, um, the files of Con Edison, where George Metesky had once been an employee. And so there was, while there was the profile provided by Dr. Russell, there was also a kind of parallel paper chase that was going on in the, in the files of of Con Edison, but the two kind of informed each other. And I guess what I would say is that the profile narrowed the search window for for the police. When they found the uh, George Metesky's file in the Con Edison uh, headquarters, um, it matched up with what Dr. Brussel had had provided. And so it, it played a kind of important role in that way. 
Right. And so um, and, and he went on to have involvements in other cases and maybe no, none of them quite so, so spectacularly on the nose as this one. Although I was very impressed with and, and I think history kind of bears this out as as they were looking at the Boston Strangler, which would have been a subsequent case that had excited if anything, more national scrutiny and national desire to know who was doing this stuff, and which also has a Connecticut angle because when he was operating as the green man before he started actually killing people, he operated here in Connecticut. But anyway, um, one of the things that Brussels figured out was that uh, although there was a transition that was ultimately made from older women women to younger women, that it, it, it could and probably was the same person and it represented a psychological progression he was engaging in, which, which I think, you know, was kind of a remarkable deduction. Right. I mean, it was, it was, really, a, it was really a breakthrough because previous to that, the, the uh, Massachusetts District Attorney's Office had assembled the kind of dream team of psychiatrists and, and, and other people to help solve this case since the police had, had floundered. And, and most of the people, or really every, all of the people on that panel, believed that there wasn't one Boston Strangle. There were two and possibly three because the, because the treatment of the victims, as, as you said, changed over time. It was Dr. Brussel's revelation that, no, in fact, they were dealing with, with, with one killer. It's just that he was undergoing a kind of sexual uh, maturation um, in the process of, of killing these women. You know, uh, Dr. Russell came to his role as a profile relatively late in life and late in career, and and that may affect this, and and also because, in fact, he was not really part of law enforcement apparatus. He was he was something different. Because we have this image of the profiler that is not unwarranted as this per, as these people who are often very caught up in what they're doing, who often, because they're trying to crawl inside the mind uh, of, uh, of some horrible perpetrator, uh, and because in order to be an acclaimed profiler, they have to be good at that, um, th- that it, it exacts this terrible toll on them. And so we're, we're going to be talking to James Fitzgerald in just a second about that. That, but John Douglas, who's also kind of a highly acclaimed profiler, went uh, went through stuff like that. I never get the feeling that Brussels did. Brussels was this guy, right? If you met him at a party, he'd be kind of an entertaining guy, well-dressed, well-groomed. Uh, he would definitely be an entertaining guy at the party. He was usually the entertaining guy right. at the party. But you, if you met him at a party, you would also come to the conclusion that he was the weirdest person at the party. <laughs> I mean, he was... You know, I don't know that eccentric is a strong enough word for him. He was crazy himself, mm-hmm. and and that plays an important part in this in this story because Brussel believed what what Brussel said to the police essentially was, "You're just dismissing this person as being crazy. You think he doesn't have his own logic? That's not right. Mm-hmm. Paranoid schizophrenics have their own logic. You just don't understand that logic." And so part of the genius of Dr. Brussel, part of why he made a breakthrough, was that he understood that profiling was predicated on getting inside the offender's mind and understanding their logic. And Dr. Brussel, by his own account, was crazy enough that he was able to make that leap. In, in his later life, he wrote a detective um, novel, a um, a novel called Just Murder, Darling. And he joked that he was able to write that novel because he kind of understood the mind, 
the mind of a, of a, of a murderer. Right. He actually said, uh, 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 I have a dirty, rotten, no good mind, and my wife and I laugh about it all, all the time. And, you know, I want to come back to one of the things you said, because I think it's this is a really interesting thing. Um, at least it interested me a lot when I, when I read his book four times, which is my recollection was that uh, he dealt with another bombing case after that and the, the much more lethal kind of bombing. And he had a lot more trouble because, as you just um, kind of hinted at, um, one thing that Brussels said about a paranoid schizophrenic is once you grant their initial premise, pretty much everything else makes sense. You know, it's not just l- this wildly delusional uh, uh, nightmare scape where you can't follow the logic or anything like that. No. Once you grant, grant the initial premise, a lot of other stuff falls into place. Whereas this other bomber, my recollection was that uh, Brussels believed he was schizophrenic, and it was much harder to assemble his thought process as a result. Yeah, I'm not sure what case you're, you're referring to exactly, but, um, I mean, essentially what he was doing was um, diagnosing these these offenders based on based on the evidence and then following you know he was using you know freudian theory for that and then he was just following what their what their own um logic would would be all right we're gonna have to stop there but i mean no reason why you have to stop there you could go right ahead and uh, get your hands on incendiary uh the psychiatrist the mad bomber and the invention of criminal profiling by michael cannell our guest here thanks so much for being with us Hey, this was great. Thank you for having me. And when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about another case. It resembles the Mad Bomber a little bit in that, you know, certain criminals are rather cooperative in terms of providing samples of their own writing to law enforcement. Uh, that was the case with George Metesky, also the case with Ted Kaczynski. There are other parallels as well. We'll explore those with the man we know as Fitz when we come back. You got All right, we're back. Um, I feel very connected to this show today. As I outlined before, I was a huge, at the age of 14, I read uh, James Brussels' book, Casebook of a Crime Psychiatrist, four times. You'll also find out in the final segment that uh, my mother has a sort of a connection to the the Man from the Train, uh, Bill James' uh, book, where they sort of found a serial killer whom nobody knew existed. My mother was not a serial killer, however, nor was she a profiler. Um, and then recently, uh, bef- I started watching this show. I don't even know why. I, apparently, I'm very interested in these things. I started watching this show uh, about the hunt uh, for the for another bomber, uh, for the so-called Unabomber. Uh, it featured uh, an actor playing a real-life uh, profiler, FBI profiler, James Fitzgerald. Uh, and James Fitzgerald is with us right now, uh, a retired FBI agent, a criminal profiler, profiler uh, and a forensic linguist. Uh, he is the author of a series of memoirs called A Journey to the Center of the Mind. Welcome to our conversation. Good afternoon, Colin. How are you today? I'm just fine. Um, so, so much to talk about. This is all so uh, fascinating. But, you know, maybe we could just, uh, there's an interesting link. There are several links, obviously, to, from George Metesky to Ted Kaczynski. They're both bombers. They're both uh, people who, who, who shared their writing with law enforcement before they were caught. And, and so let's talk about that second thing, because language becomes important, too. One of the things that, that James Brussel noted about Metesky is he had certain ways of expressing himself that didn't seem like maybe he lived in an ethnic enclave of some, time, of some kind. He didn't 
didn't talk about Con Ed. He talked about the Con Edison, the Con Edison, with a little period after Con. And and I remember Brussel looked at that and thought, you know, this is a guy who doesn't. He's he his language isn't exactly the language of the kind of people around him in New York. Everybody in New York calls Con, Consolidated Edison Con Ed. And and this is this tracks very nicely into uh, some of what you did with the Unabomber, right? Was to realize that it, with this huge manifesto, there were linguistic ticks that you could see. Absolutely. And and before that, and with, this works for uh, Metesky as well as Kaczynski, and besides their names and being in similar sounds there, mm-hmm. uh, bombers by them, uh, uh, bombers in and of themselves are meticulous people, at least the successful ones. Uh, if they're not meticulous, they, might, they might, may wind up getting killed or losing limbs or certainly getting arrested early on. So when you have a bomber who is successful, a serial bomber, certainly in this country, uh, they are very careful about how they craft their devices. Well, guess what, Colin? When they begin writing, <laughs> they are very careful about how they craft uh, their language. And that's exactly what we had in the test. I know a little bit about that case. I know you talked about it before, mm. but certainly the one I know a great deal about is uh, the Unabom case and ultimately a guy that we determined to be named Ted Kaczynski. And that essentially... His, his language in his letters and his um, manifesto mirrored the uh, idiosyncratic features of his bombs in that they were basically perfectly made and functioned every time very well to include leaving false clues on his bombs as well as in his letters. So we definitely have a correlation there, which I was one of the first people to pick up once I was assigned to the Unabomb Task Force. Right. So and this involved a kind of... Uh, of subspecialty that that kind of didn't exist. It just exist, just in the same sense that James Brussel was a profiler before there were profilers. You were doing something that started to be called forensic linguistics uh, before there was really necessarily an understanding of what that could possibly mean. We're going to play just a little clip from the series uh, that's uh, uh, based on this case and, and based on your work, Manhunter, Manhunt, Unabomber. Uh, let's play uh, clip B1, though, B1. It's a letter to the editor. Ted wrote in the early 70s. His mom saved the copy. Read here. You can't eat your cake and have it too. It's supposed to be the other way around, right? Have your cake, eat it too. Another Unabomber manifesto. Paragraph 185. You can't eat your cake and have it too. He wrote it wrong twice. No, he wrote it right twice. That is the correct phrase. We stopped saying it that way nearly 400 years ago, but Kaczynski uses it correctly. All the rest of us say it wrong. Holy You said you wanted a smoking gun. How about a smoking proverb? So James Fitzgerald, this is one of the examples of the, the kind of fly-specking that was done of the way that Kaczynski, whose name nobody knew at that point, used language. And one of the things that it ranged from things like that, idiosyncrasies that were different from the way most people talk, to things that were regional that might pin him down to a region, correct? Yeah, and they had a lot of time with the, with the writers before they wrote the script, and they captured that holy beep moment very well, because mm-hmm. uh, that's literally what I said when I first uh, saw that uh, 1972 letter to the editor, I think to the Saturday Evening Post from Kaczynski, and then, of course, traced it back to uh, manif- the, the manifesto paragraph 185. And um, it was a smoking gun that we don't always get in forensic linguistic analysis, 
but something we could definitely put our finger on. And it is what helped take that whole prosecution stage and us getting the search warrant to the next level. So that was one of the key phrases. It was, in fact, a proverb, axiom. People call it different things. But uh, when that was actually when that actually came about, about, I think it was just about a week before the search warrant was actually served, that kind of put the nail in the coffin of Kaczynski, at least for search warrant purposes. And that's how we went ahead. Before then, we weren't really sure we even had enough evidence, certainly not for an arrest, but definitely, but even even so, I should say, for a search warrant. But this particular phrase and finding it matched up in one of Kaczynski's uh, known writings really made the difference. You know, we were talking about profilers in general today on the show, James Fitzgerald, and there's a way, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed to me anyway that ultimately the Unabom case was sort of a duel of competing profiles. You know, there was this kind of blue-collar idea that because of the way that he worked on the bombs and stuff, and there were all kinds of reasons to suspect, some people said, that he might be from a blue-collar background. Then there was a John Douglas profile uh, that was kind of flashy in its level of details, right down to stuff like he was going to have an old but well-maintained car, which turned out not to be true, and maybe even a lady friend living with him, but forbidden to go into one certain room. Nah, that's not true either. Um, and 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 so there were, and then you started to come up with this linguistically based set of ideas too. Uh, and, and I mean, in a way, profiling really worked in the Unabom case, but in another way, would you be willing to say it didn't work? There were just too many different ideas about who this guy was? Well, interestingly, after spending seven years in New York as a, as a special agent, uh, I came to Quantico in April of 95, and we had 12 weeks of training, sort of a mini academy in profiling. And John Douglas was just retiring at that point. So we didn't really know it at the time, but he effectively passed the torch to me because we did have a two-hour block on the Unabom case that he presented going over uh, you know, his, his profiles and how they evolved over the years. And any profile knows, and, you, and when, you, when you present a profile to investigators, uh, be it your own in the FBI, in my case, or other law enforcement agencies, you always want to tell them, look, you know, here are 10 points uh, or, or factoids we think will we'll, we'll, we'll link to the, this unknown offender at this point in time. Not necessarily every single aspect is going to be 100% dead on, and you have to realize that. And just because you may have eight or nine of these match up, you know, a male living, you know, by himself, uh, has a job, doesn't deal with certain kinds of people, you know, criminal history of, you know, peeping Tom uh, or stealing, you know, underwear off of clotheslines, things like that. If one of them for some reason doesn't match up, and I put this in my book in that long final chapter about the Unabom case, don't rule out a suspect. We can still keep him on our list. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to discredit, you know, John Douglas here in that regard. He didn't have the manifesto to work with. He retired just about the same week the manifesto was received at the New York Times. They asked me to go to San Francisco for 30 days to help them on this case. And because I was giving and finding so much information out of the manifesto, they said, Jim, you know, can you hang around a little bit longer? Fitz, they also called me. And I said, you know, sure. And we wound up putting everything together. And it all uh, came to pass once out of 2,500 other suspects, a guy named Ted Kaczynski was called in by his brother. And we said, let's add him to the list. And next thing you know, I started reading some of his documents, including one 23-page document from the early 70s, and the case came together. All right. So um, so another question I have for you, 
I'm going to call you Fitz just once so I can that's feel like fine. I'm sort of part of this. So, Fitz, I have this one question for you. Um, one of the, I think, cliches or images that we have of the profiler, and it's it's not unapplicable to John Douglas, is that this exacts a psychic toll uh, on a person. I mean, Douglas at one point apparently was very near death from, a, from an actual real medical illness that a lot of doctors thought was very stress-related just from spending so much time crawling inside the heads of the most horrible people in the world. So, so and I know that you're inaccurately depicted at the beginning of the series as living out in the woods eating rabbits and you kind of turned into Ted Kaczynski, which I, I believe... Thank you, thank you, thank you for volunteering that. Go yeah. ahead, Carl. So, but, but what about it? I mean, do you feel as though there, there's a cost to doing this kind of work to, to, to you? Well, I'll tell you, Colin, I'm, I'm one of the few um, profilers who actually have a long prior career in law enforcement. I was a police officer for 11 years and Ben Salem Township, Pennsylvania, a northern suburb of Philly. And I was on plenty of crime scenes. I mean, besides not even mention car accidents where there's some, you know, very tragic events that unfolded, but certainly shooting scenes, suicide, stabbings. I've been there, done that. And the same in New York, working bank robberies, kidnappings. Uh, I was there for the first World Trade Center bombing. You know, I, I saw in person and close up the actual carnage that, 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 that criminals and serial offenders can leave behind them. As a profiler, you're mostly getting on the case, in fact, every single time, you're getting on the case after it happens. And yes, you may be trying to predict to some degree what's going to happen next by a serial offender. But most of the times you're reading reports, looking at pictures, autopsy uh, findings, things like that. And they can be very graphic. They can be very uh, detailed. They can be very disturbing. Uh, and they certainly were to me. But I found in my career, once I sort of hit the profiling stage, I was no, no longer turning up on scenes and actually standing over the dead bodies while they're still warm and bleeding. I don't want to get any more graphic than that for your listeners. But so to me, and this is all relative, and I don't think Douglas had a law enforcement career before the FBI, so he mostly worked off of pictures and reports. But for me, getting away from being actually on the scene, um, at least as the body is still there, um, to me was a big advantage. So I kind of could deep... uh, uh, compartmentalize that and sort of draw that wall in my brain of just saying, all right, hey, it used to be I was on the scene for these things. Now I'm just looking at pictures and reading reports. That's a little bit easier than it used to be. Then I also just learned once that door closed behind me on the police department or the FBI office where I may be, I try to do a mental sort of, um, you know, close the garage door on my brain too. And I would purposely go home and put something silly on TV. I rarely would watch cop shows or show or movies like that or even read books in that regard. Uh, I mean, nonfiction, I would to kind of, you know, keep myself up in the game, but other stuff I wouldn't. So in that way, I never let that happen to me. And even though they showed the Fitz character in in Manhunt, you know, sort of getting, you know, on which ends there, um, it never quite happened to me that bad because I kind of knew how to divorce myself from that early on. You know, um, James Fitzgerald, what are the things that we we have handed down to us by primetime television and things like that? And people right now are watching Mindhunter, which is uh, based somewhat on John Douglas. Um, is this notion that it always seems to be a man tracking down a man, a man trying to figure out a man? Um, and, and I'm wondering about that. I mean, obviously, the perps quite often are men. Men do m- more of this horrible stuff by far uh, than women do. Are there women profilers? I mean, do uh, like women are pretty smart about men most of the time. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's very interesting. After uh, I never even saw the movie Silence of the Lambs back in the early 90s when it came out. It's really good. You should watch be, it. I applied to be a profiler. And someone, oh, just like Silence. I said, you know, I've been hearing about this movie. I guess I should watch it. 
But here, once I became a profiler, my phone would ring uh, at Quantico, you know, usually friends of friends, an FBI agent in Topeka or something like that. They have a neighbor whose daughter wants to be a profiler. Everyone wanted to be Clarice Starling. And, and so it was funny how all it was mostly females who wanted to get into the FBI and be profilers. I'm not sure if any of these phone calls actually, actually bore fruit from the women I talked to back in the day. But no, the FBI, uh, I think at any given time, the profiling unit, which has about 25 different full-time profilers, I believe, all special agents, and of course there's about 25 other support staff that help, I'd say there are at least half females in there. And that's not proportionate to the FBI. The FBI is probably now about 15, maybe 18% female to male. Uh, but definitely the profilers, uh, I, I think it's upwards of, you know, 40 to 50% female. And they, and the ones I work with, most of them anyway, um, really could do their job very well. And they had insight that men didn't have. So like you were saying early on, and when you asked me this question, it's, a, you know, it's a man against a man. You're right. Violent offenders are usually men. Um, but it's certainly um, the people that hunt them do it in a team. And it's never one-on-one. And, yeah, there may be one case agent in charge. Uh, there may be one person whose name goes on the bottom of a profile, something like that. But we find it best to do it in a team. And quite frankly, that's what helped us solve the Unibomb case, working in a team. I had a team working for me doing the comparative analysis, um, uh, as we call it, the comparative analysis project. And that's how we were comparing all the language and the words in the Kaczynski writings, 178 of them, and the 14 documents by the Unabomber. And our team is what helped solve that case. All right. James Fitzgerald, uh, thrilled to talk to you. Retired FBI agent, criminal profiler, uh, the guy you see chronicled in that show, Manhunt. Uh, and uh, he's the author uh, of a series of memoirs called A Journey to the Center of the Mind. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Colin. You have a good day. All right. So we have one last bit of profiling to do here, uh, and it involves a rather uncharacteristic source of profiling, a guy who's really famous for something else, and that something else is baseball, which is usually not life or death unless you're a Red Sox fan. Uh, All right. Well, we're going to talk to Bill James when we come back. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kyone Wolf, and our intern, Sarah Bly. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jody Foster. And now, back to Colin. All right. So, yes, baseball and murder typically don't go hand in hand. I mean, Craig Kimbrell's a pretty intense guy, but not like that. Uh, however, Bill James, who is the father of an empirical analysis of baseball, uh, eventually which eventually came to be known as Sabermetrics, um, and perhaps more relevantly, he's the co-author of The Man from the Train, the solving uh, of a century-old serial killer mystery. When I say he's the co-author, the other person uh, involved is one Rachel McCarthy James, a writer and researcher. Uh, she is also a co-author uh, of the same book. They are both with us right now, uh, and I have a um, slight irrelevant detail that is uh, germane to the conversation we're about to have, but I will unveil it as we go along here. So, first of all, uh, Bill and Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having us. So, uh, Bill James, let's start here. I mean, uh, we've been talking on this show for the last 
40 minutes about profilers who, who whether it's James Brussel or James, Fitz, uh, James Fitzgerald, they're looking at a set of crimes and trying to figure out who committed that set of crimes. What you guys did, you kind of did it in reverse. You looked at a crime that obviously had a perpetrator and then wondered if there was a set of crimes that went with it. Do I have that right? No, I wouldn't say so. The, uh, we started with a set of crimes. Uh, and then discovered that the set of crimes was actually much larger than we initially realized that it was or initially believed that it was. So explain what the set of crimes were. The initial set of crimes is centered around the murders in Villisca, Iowa, on June 9, 1912. But there uh, was another crime six days before that, fairly obviously the same person. And there are about three crimes prior to that one, which are pretty obviously the same person. And before we um, get to Rachel and talk a little bit about sort of what turned out to be the first crime, Bill James, there were some similarities. There were some details that started to map onto other crimes. What were some of those details? The, uh, uh, when I started this and until I hired Rachel to expand the pool, I really did not have a good focus on it. I, I was looking too broadly. I was looking, for example, at axe murders. Well, axe murders can be con- committed with a small axe or a large, and with the blunt side of the axe or the sharp. It turns out that all of our guys' crimes were committed with the blunt side of a large, heavy axe. Uh, so we started out with a, a broader image of what we were looking for and then wound up with a much more specific idea of which crimes were related to our series. So, so blunt side of the axe would be one of them, killing a whole family would be another one? There were 33 things, or 34, that identified a crime that might be part of our series. Those are some of them, and some of those, some which are less disgusting, disturbing to the average reader. For example, access to the house through a rear window. He would take off a rear window screen, crawl in through a, a rear window. He's quite athletic, little guy. And uh, another would be that he often left a, a lamp burning at the scene of the crime without its chimney. You see that, that's a really good indication that it's him. So, Rachel, one of the questions would, which then arose was, was there, there must have been a first crime there. Whoever did this, if in fact the same person is doing all these things that have startling, startlingly similar uh, details, uh, when was the first time that that person did such a horrible thing? Uh, and um, I have to now tell you that my mother uh, is from, or she's dead now, but she was from North Brookfield, Massachusetts. So this area we're about to talk to, oh, really? to talk about was a very familiar oh, area to me. But anyway, well, not, so so yeah. tell us tell us how you found this first crime. Well, when Dad, Bill's my dad, when he first hired me, he said, um, eventually, if we get lucky, we may find a crime that looks like the other crimes, but is different in some significant way. So he started me looking back at 1907, 1908. He found a crime in 1909 that was similar, uh, which is the first chapter of our book, uh, took place in Hurley, Virginia. And then I started looking back and I thought, okay, there was nothing in 1907, nothing in 1908. What if I, I kind of, I wanted to keep the job and I wanted to keep working. So I thought, what if I looked a little bit earlier? And as soon as I hit 1906, I started finding crimes that were strikingly similar to uh, the commonalities between the crimes in 1911 and 1912 that we already knew about. And there were about 12, 13 
um, things that were already established from previous research. So I started looking back through the decade before that, started finding crimes in 1904, 1903, etc. And then eventually there was a mention in one of these crimes about uh, this was surely done by the same fiend who committed the murder of uh, in North Brookfield back in 1898. And I thought, oh, okay, well, let's look into that. And so I found a description of this crime on um, Google Books, actually, and I started researching it, and it said the suspect was last seen headed for the train. And at that point, I started trying to call and email my dad, who was in Boston at the time, because I was pretty sure right away that I had found something big. Right. We should say that. I have something about this show today. There's like a Connecticut connection for everything. Oh, obviously, we, we didn't even mention the the Unabomber. Uh, obviously, one of his targets was David Gallertner at Yale University. And this yeah. one, poor Mr. Francis Newton, the victim that you're talking about, actually was from Hartford yeah. originally. Uh, and it seems yeah. as though his murderer may also have escaped through New Haven, right? Uh, that's possible. I think that was the last place he was seen was on the train through New Haven. Right, getting off a smoking car there. Yes, exactly, exactly. Changing his hat a lot. Yeah. So, um, so Bill James, let's go back a second, because as a premier user of statistics, uh, um, this is something that you would have to think about a lot. And you said this earlier in the conversation. You said part of the problem initially was you were casting too wide a net. So somehow or other, you have to figure out how significant this concatenation of statistics is. In other words, probably a lot of people who kill people go through a back window, you know, of a house or, or, or whatever. So how, how did you ultimately figure out which things were signals and which things were noise? The, uh, well, I wouldn't say we're 100% sure of that. It's not statistical. However, there is, I have a really good intuitive sense of probability from having worked with probabilities for a long time. And one begins to see that certain things cannot reasonably be coincidences, uh, while other things exist which could be coincidences but, but also are part of a pattern. And somebody else might share that pattern. But uh, when, they, well, when they are connected with the things that are not part of the, of the common, more common, more larger pattern, then they become part of our pattern. All right, so that yeah. probably doesn't make any sense, but he almost always killed right near midnight. Right. None of his yeah. crimes occurred at three in the morning or four in the morning. It's right near midnight. Yeah. So if you see that right near midnight, that doesn't mean it's him, but it's a signal. So, and one yeah, thing that we yeah. did mm-hmm. to answer your question, if I can jump in for a second, is I looked through a lot, pretty much every family murder between 1890 and 1920. And doing that really helps me refine the difference between a man from the train crime and just a regular, <laughs> a regular family murder that had nothing to do with him. Uh, it became quite stark as we collected more and more information, which crimes were obviously not his and which were obviously not his. And obviously we had this list that we would refer to. Um, but a lot of it was just fitting it in and seeing what looked right and how it fit into our narrative, which I think is one thing that uh, we do well in the book, is explain the thought process behind a crime and not just say, this is it, um, here's our evidence, basically. We talk about how we see it fitting into the murders. So, Rachel, what's your, what's your level of confidence that you've basically got this right, that you've got the right guy, that he did so many of these other things? 
my confidence that this is the same guy who committed the Valeska crimes and several other crimes is pretty high. I'd say 95 percent. I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that um, the man who committed the Newton murders is the same man who committed the Valeska crimes. As for whether or not we got all of them, I'm actually pretty confident that we did not get all of them. This guy committed a lot of murders, and I don't think we've found all of them yet. I think there's definitely more to find that were not captured by the that were not reported on by the newspapers for whatever reason. So, um, Bill James, you know, maybe one difference between this and some of the other stuff that you've done is, in, in a way, you use statistics to challenge the assumptions that have become sort of folklore and intuition for managers. You know, so does it make sense to bunt in this situation? Well, let's look at 30,000 repetitions of that particular situation and let's see how effective bunting was. You actually can get uh, a pretty strong statistical answer about whether or not bunting is a good idea. Does this feel a little different? I mean, the nobody's alive who's connected to this. You're, you're not going to be able to prove something. Uh, right. And the baseball is unique in that it's so, so thoroughly documented. Uh, every event on the baseball field for the last 60 years has been documented in really good detail and for the last 150 years in a lot of detail. So you have lots of records to work with. You don't have in crime or in almost anything else the same detail of the same wealth of detail in recording each event. If you did, it would be really easy to find patterns, uh, but but it just doesn't exist. It, a lot of it could be created after the fact, but it, it hasn't been yet. So, hey, Rachel James, uh, Rachel McCarthy James, um, yeah, one, of the, one of the differences uh, here is, um, you know, if managers bunt when they shouldn't bunt, uh, the consequences are relatively low. One of the things that's kind of upsetting about what you found is people were executed and lynched for crimes that this other person may have committed. Absolutely. Yeah, that was almost, you know, you got throughout the process of researching these, I would get kind of used to seeing the murders, and that wouldn't disturb me so much, because that's what I was looking for. I was emotionally prepared to accept them as something that happened a long time ago, and that wasn't that disturbing to me. But when you got to the end of the story and you figured, found out, when you got to these, further on with the research in this, and you saw somebody who was obviously not guilty being subject to horrible miscarriages of justice, um, then that was really upsetting and stuck with you a lot longer than a lot of the descriptions of the actual crimes in a way. All right. We're going to have to stop there. The book is The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer Mystery. The authors of said book are Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. I want to thank uh, Jonathan McNichol, who seems every bit as interested in this stuff as I am. That should alarm the people around both of us. Although really the person that I would be like watching carefully is Betsy Kaplan or Josh Nalea. To tell you the truth, Jonathan and I are the only people here that I would not suspect of doing any of these really horrible things. Um, everybody else connected to the I, Kion Wolf, I doubt would do anything bad. It's really Josh and Betsy when you get down to it. All right, we have to go. We'll be back tomorrow.